There was a phrase that uh, my wife says often, and she said a lot during our engagement. Um, and that phrase was, dating stinks. And like, I took a little bit of offense at that. I'm like, I'm sorry you had to spend copious amounts of time with me uh, over the past, you know, couple of years. And, uh, you know, all I could remember, I didn't think that dating stunk at all. Like, I, all I was remembering was, you know, our first date, getting to hang out and get some coffee and uh, talking for like three hours and hearing Maritza's heart and how much she loved the Lord and, um, how, and she asked me how many kids I wanted, which was weird, but it was still cool. Um, I remember, <laughs> she hates that. She insists that that was just like a normal question that you ask somebody on a first date. But um, what else did I enjoy? Uh, I really enjoyed our first date. Uh, I thought about that a lot and how we uh, went out. And I asked her to be my girlfriend in Spanish, which, guys, if you date a girl uh, who's Hispanic, all you got to do is just talk to her a little bit in Spanish, and she'll fall in love with you really helps for non-romantic types, non-romantic types like myself. Uh, what else happened? Uh, I made her take a personality test uh, on our first date. Uh, it turned out well, though. Like, we were a perfect match. I don't know what would have happened if we weren't, but we were. So it turned out good. So I just remember dating is like all this amazing stuff. Um, she remembers having to drive 45 minutes to an hour from Garland to Irving every time we would hang out, hang out like depending on what time of day it was. And, you know, she remembered, um, you know, not getting to, I know she hated this the most, is, you know, we could hold hands and stuff, but we couldn't get our smoochy smooch on because we weren't uh, married yet, and, you know, we, we decided we were going to wait for that kind of thing, and so, was that too much? I'm sorry. I won't, I won't ever tell you guys about our, my smoochy smooch life again, uh, but yeah, she remembers dating not near as fondly as I did, and because, I think that's partially because I kind of remember the beginning part of dating, and Maybe towards the end, whenever I knew that we were about to get married and I was about to, we were about to get engaged and stuff, but she just remembers the middle of dating, the part where we're kind of semi-committed to each other, like we're not allowed to see other people, but we haven't made any real like covenant promises or anything, and so we're just kind of in this weird place, and, and so she might be right, dating, dating stinks. The middle stinks. You know, a lot of times we start out in something and something's new and it's fresh and it's like really exciting. Um, like a new relationship or getting into college and starting a degree or whatever. Uh, and the end is okay, too, because we see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we're like, okay, like, I can do this. This is almost over. Um, I got, like, a semester left of seminary, and I'm super stoked for that, and just, woo, let's go. But two years ago, um, my dad asked me, hey, do you want to, like, how do you feel about doing seminary? Would you do it again? I said, no, and I was serious. I was like, I would not do this again. So the middle, the middle's rough. The middle is rough. And unfortunately, uh, if you've been listening over the past uh, couple days, Mike gave us a great sermon on Sunday morning where he said that, you know, God created the world really, really good. He created this beautiful garden, this paradise where we had this perfect relationship with him. Uh, we're in this Garden of Eden, this tree of life in the middle of it. And if you're listening to Terry's message yesterday, or was it yesterday? Yeah, it was last night. At the end of days, God is going to restore that Garden of Eden, and there's going to be uh, this, again, a perfect place, this paradise, again, revolving around this tree of life. But there's a lot in this area right here, between those two. And unfortunately, that's where we are. We are somewhere here in the middle of all of that. 
So we're just going to talk a little bit about what it means to be uh, in the middle tonight. Uh, the middle kind of starts off in Daniel 7 is where we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to be here for a minute, so if you want to open up your Bibles, uh, go ahead and do that. Daniel is, by the way, this is like the end of, this is like halfway through Daniel chapter 7. This is after all the cool stories like the lions and the, uh, the furnace of fire and stuff like that. So this is, if you're like me, like where you stopped reading. Uh, but there's good stuff in here. So beginning of Daniel 7, Daniel is having a night vision. And if you're wondering what a night vision is, it's like a vision, but at nighttime. So you're welcome for that. So he's having this vision in the night, and he's seeing all these crazy, fantastic things, these, uh, these amazing, terrifying creatures, um, and they're kind of out there, and they're a little crazy, and so I surf the web, and uh, it's crazy what you, like, surf the web on, like, with some of these kind of things from the Bible, you get some crazy stuff, but I went and found some professional artist renderings of some of these animals, so uh, just, you can follow along in your Bible and look at these pictures at the same time. Kind of help your mind picture it a little better. Verse 4 says, the first was like a lion. And it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And, the mind, and was given the mind of a human. And there before me was a second beast, and which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads. And it was given and it was given authority to rule. Maybe not. Okay, there we go. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had, it had ten horns. And if you count, there's actually ten horns on there. So, Daniel is seeing all these animals, he's seeing all these crazy creatures, and we'll find out later uh, in the interpretation that these are actually kings of kingdoms. Um, and it goes on. And then God comes into the picture. It says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like white wool. His throne was aflaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. So God, we're coming in this place where God is... Uh, in this throne room, and he's about to cast judgment on these kings, on these, they're symbolized by these beasts. You can take that off the screen. I feel like nobody's going to hear anything I say until, yeah, okay, thank you. 
And so God's sitting here uh, in his throne room, and he's about to cast judgment on these beasts. And you think that God is perfectly capable of doing this on his own, uh, but there's another character who comes into the picture. Verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we got all these kings, we got all these kingdoms that Daniel's seeing, and Jesus comes in the picture, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is bringing with him this kingdom. This kingdom's never going to pass away. It's never going to be destroyed. Well, 500 years later, a man steps on the scene in Galilee and he starts doing all these miracles and he has a favorite name for himself, Son of Man. And he's got one favorite thing that he's talking about all the time, the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes with this kingdom and he starts doing all this crazy stuff and all these miracles and he starts uh, telling people, hey, this kingdom is here. Now, I think that this kingdom of God requires a little bit of definition, right? A little bit of explanation. It's kind of uh, a Christianese term, if you haven't noticed. Like, we're like, brother and sister, it's good to be in the kingdom of God. And we're just like, amen, that's right. What exactly does that mean again? But we don't actually say that because we want to seem spiritual and stuff. But the kingdom of God, I think, is more simple than we make it out to be, although it is very lofty and theoretical and kind of crazy to talk about, but I think the best place to figure out where the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is, is to look at the passage where Jesus tells us to seek it. In Matthew 6, in the, um, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says these words. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Did you catch that? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we can get real technical and put a real difficult definition on the kingdom of heaven. There's certainly a lot there. But I think the easiest way to understand the kingdom of heaven is simply in those words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, it makes sense, though. If you think about uh, kingdoms on this earth, what happens in a kingdom? Whatever the king wants. The king gets what he wants in his kingdom. If, if you're outside of his kingdom, you're not really under his jurisdiction. He doesn't get what he wants over you. If he wants uh, these people to listen to him, he has to go and expand his kingdom to include those people. And it's the same way with God. The kingdom of heaven is simply God's getting what he wants in that place. Things are happening God's way. And we see in the Lord's Prayer that things are happening God, when things are happening God's way, it looks like heaven. You see, this is, this is why uh, the Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world. Did you know that? You know who rules the world? Technically not God. Satan. See, the way it worked is that in the very beginning, Jesus, or uh, God, gave Adam and Eve dominion to rule over the world. It was actually our job to co-rule the world with God. But what happened whenever Satan convinced us that, he had, that we you know, were being cheated on the deal, we gave up our rulership whenever we sinned. And we actually handed over our rulership to Satan. And that's why Satan is is our enemy, not God's enemy. That's why he's so mad at you. That's why he wants to kill you, is because you took your, you know, you're taking his job back. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But 
So basically what's happening, whenever we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, hey, right now when we see all this sin, we see all this brokenness around us, that means that the devil is having his way. His will is being done in his kingdom. But whenever God brings his kingdom and he gets his will in his way, it looks like heaven. Does that make sense? So big question is, when is the kingdom of heaven, though? See, Terry talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven uh, in his message yesterday. And he talked about how God is going to come and he's going to fully establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus is going to come and he's going to totally take all of this earth, all this place for God, and he's going to take heaven and earth and he's going to make them into one. They're going to come together. This place isn't going anywhere. It's not being destroyed. God is going to bring heaven and earth together in a new recreated place. And we see that Jesus is going to do that for God. The Bible says that Jesus is going to uh, take that kingdom and hand it over to the Father. Now, that's all future. The main, huge, full fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom will be in the future. But the crazy thing is, Jesus came to this, work, this, this earth, and he said these things like, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And that was 2,000 years ago. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven with him. This is all going to make sense in a little bit. Thanks for sticking with me right here. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven with him. And so you kind of try to put these things together and you say, wait, I, think, I thought that the kingdom of heaven was something that God is going to bring uh, in the future. And then we see that Jesus said, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here. How do we deal with that? Well, what I think is that, yes, the kingdom of heaven is coming in the future, but what Jesus did and what he calls us to do is to bring a little taste of heaven everywhere we go, a little taste of the kingdom of heaven everywhere. See, we're talking about being somewhere in the middle right now. We could talk a lot about how the world is broken. We can talk a lot about how there is sin rampant. We can talk about shootings taking place just 30 miles down the road this weekend, but I think Mike did a great job of that on Sunday morning, and so I'm just going to be here, and I'm going to talk to you about what we have been given uh, in Christ to do something about it. See, Jesus uh, says some really cool stuff. He talks about uh, when the kingdom is going to come, and we just talked about how Jesus is going to be the one to bring the kingdom, right? He's going to deliver it into the Father's hand. And he talks a little bit in Matthew 24 about when all that's going to take place, when he's going to fully bring the kingdom. And I think we have a slide for that. Um, yeah. So what Jesus tells them is he said, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what, what he's saying is don't, like, grab your calendar and your Bible and, like, try to work out when this is going to happen, right? Luke's smiling because, he, you know, people do that, and it's crazy. Uh, and they're always wrong by the way, if you go back and look. And then they come up like, oh, I miscalculated, and you know, the day's, you know, this day. Um, so Jesus is saying that nobody's going to know the day and the hour. But he also says this in his sermon. He says, go ahead and do that next slide. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You guys catch that? 
he says in his sermon, he says, hey, nobody's going to know whenever the end's going to come. Nobody's going to know when I fully bring the kingdom. But then he goes on and he says, but there is one thing that we do know is it won't happen until this gospel has been preached through all the world. You see where I'm going with this? A lot of times we think Jesus is going to bring the kingdom. Jesus, Jesus is the one who started all this when he came to earth, and he's the one who's going to finish it and bring the kingdom in fulfillment. He's going to be the one to bring heaven to earth. He's going to be the one to make all things right. And so I can sit here and wait until he does or until I die because that's Jesus' job. But that's not true. Jesus' job when he came to the earth was to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And he, as we all know, ascended into heaven. He left. And so we think that we're just waiting for him to come back, but he left in that sense. But we are the body of Christ. His job didn't change. Jesus Christ is still bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's just he's doing it through a different body, through us. You are the hands and feet. You are the ones to bring the kingdom. I love this uh, in Matthew chapter 4. I just want to talk for a second about what it looks like to bring the kingdom. What does it look like in the kingdom? Terry talked a little bit about it. He said that the kingdom of heaven is going to be this beautiful place. It's going to be a lot like the garden back there where there's going to be no pain. There's going to be no crying. There's going to be uh, no death. There's going to be no sadness. All this stuff in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus said, I'm coming to bring the kingdom of heaven now. I'm here to give you a taste of the kingdom of heaven. And the way that he did that is Jesus never came and just said, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here. Hey, I'm here to offer you salvation. Instead, this is what he did. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus always preached the kingdom and demonstrated the kingdom. He never came with just words saying that the kingdom was here without showing with his power that the kingdom was here. Nor did he ever come and just do some miracles and make everybody like him and leave. He always told people, repent and believe that the kingdom is at hand. The beautiful thing is that in Luke chapter 9, you say, well, that was just Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it says, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them out to do the same thing. Because bringing the kingdom of God didn't change from Jesus to the disciples. Bringing the kingdom of God was preaching the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom. Hey, God is real. He loves you. Here's the evidence. Boom, blind person healed. And many people believe him. And then you might say, you know what? That was just for Jesus and the apostles. They needed power to validate their message. If Jesus and the apostles needed power to validate their message, how much more power do I need to validate the message? See, we have the canon, we have the Bible, and, uh, you know, there's no more scripture or you know, Jesus is the final revelation and all that stuff, but the, the atheist at my gym doesn't care about the canon. He doesn't care about my Bible. He needs to first hear and experience the fact that God loves him 
That's going to get his attention and make him believe this Bible. It's our job to bring the kingdom now. And it's our job to pray for the kingdom. And it's our job to demonstrate the kingdom to the people around us. It's your job, at your job, or in your home, to bring a taste of heaven. When you come around, people should see, that must be what heaven's like. People in heaven must be like that. There is no sickness in heaven. God's will in heaven is that there is no sickness, that there is no sadness, there is no crying, there is no death, and there is no ignorance of him in heaven either. And so everywhere we go, we hopefully bring along his power and see people healed. Hopefully we bring along knowledge of him and people learn about him and salvation comes. This is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. This is what being in the middle is all about. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back. We are, but we're not doing it passively. We're doing it actively. We are taking up the mantle of bringing the kingdom while he's absent. Now, there's something that I really felt like the Lord put on my heart uh, for this message. And um, one last thing about the kingdom is that, you know, we've been singing this song, Is He Worthy? And one of the lines in the song is, does the Father... Uh, truly love us? It's a good question. And a lot of us say yes. Um, and we know to say yes because of Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. Um, but do we really, really know it? Do we really, really, truly believe it? I want to show you something really cool um, back in Daniel 7 if you'll go with me. <clears throat> so just a little bit past uh, where Jesus comes in and he receives the kingdom Daniel is, is sitting there and he's trying to put all this stuff together and he says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of all these things. He said, the four great beasts and four kings that will rise from the earth, sorry, are the, four, are the four kings that will rise from the earth. And here's the kicker. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So the father takes this kingdom and he passes it on down to the son. And the amazing thing is what the son does with it. He gives it to the people of the most high. Do you know who the people of the most high are? It's you. You've been given the kingdom by Jesus himself. That's amazing. Everything that, and everything that comes with the kingdom as well. You've received salvation. You've received eternal life. You've, seen, you've received the possibility for fullness of joy. You've received the possibility to have access to God's power in your life. You have purpose. We get all that whenever we, whenever we come into the kingdom. Now, some of us think that God is barely allowing us to scrape by getting into the kingdom. Some of us think, you know what, like, I'm sure the door is like swung wide open for like Terry or Elizabeth or any of these really awesome spiritual people. I'm sure God's really happy to have them on his team, but I don't know so much about myself. I feel like I might have just squeaked by getting into the kingdom. You see, uh, in Romans 5, uh, Paul says, that's not the case, by the way. And the proof is in Romans 5, it says that, you know, a lot of people, nobody would die for a right for a uh, unrighteous person. Somebody might die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in this, that 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, people used to always tell me, uh, God doesn't owe you anything. You know, kind of with a grr after that. And like, I would sit there and agree, like, that is objectively true. Like, I believe that, that that's a true fact. But it did not make me feel good. And it didn't make me want to worship God more. It didn't put me in awe of him or anything like that, which if you receive a true word from the Lord, it will produce that in you. Um, So I would hear that and be like, that's depressing. But if you think about it, it's actually a really beautiful thing. So it should be, you know, given in this attitude of, guys, God doesn't owe you anything. It's an amazing thing because a person who gives begrudgingly, gives because they're under obligation to do so. And so somebody who's obligated to give can do so like, whatever, here, you know, I owe you this, I have to give it to you, you're stronger than me, whatever, here's this thing. But if the person giving the gift is under no obligation to the person receiving the gift and is infinitely stronger than the person receiving the gift, that means that the person receiving the gift must be getting it just because the person giving it is pleased to do it. God brought you into the kingdom. He, he has saved you but for no other reason than the fact that he likes you. He loves you. It's true. The problem is that a lot of us, we think God is a cat. Stick with me. Thanks, Hannah. We think God is a cat. You know, he is at best indifferent to us. He is Maybe, you know, slightly inconvenienced by us, but he allows us to live because we, you know, do something for him, right? Like a cat. God is not like a cat. God is a lot more like a dog. He's happy to see you. He's wagging his tail. This is like, you know, it's just an illustration. Don't, you know, get me for calling God a dog. But he's happy to see you. He actually likes you for no other reason than the fact that he likes you. And he's loyal And he'll fight tooth and nail for you like a dog. So, repeat after me, God's not a cat. Thanks. I'm not going to make you say God is a dog because that just messed up. Um, This illustration was a horrible idea. I want to show you this amazing verse to wrap up. Luke 12, 32 It's just crazy. Jesus says this. He says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. If you're in here, no matter who you are, God did not begrudgingly save you. He did not do it because he had to. He did not do it because somebody was putting a gun to his head. He did it for no other reason than the fact that he loves you. He likes you. He wanted you on the team. He didn't need you, and that's a beautiful thing. God loves you, and he's pleased to hand this kingdom over to you. I have a friend named Blake. He's a pretty new friend. Um, Forgive me if I've told this story already. I can't really remember, so just enjoy it again if I have. I have a new friend. His name's Blake, and he has come to or Bible study recently, uh, our college-age Bible study that we do. And uh, you would not, like, expect to see Blake here in church because 
Uh, he's always wearing like a death metal shirt, and his hair goes down to like right here. No joke. Um, he's got really long hair. Um, and so he's just not like your typical like Christian looking guy with like the Baptist like flow that you know me and Terry are rocking. Um, so Blake, you know, not in church. You get the idea. Um, but Blake started coming to our Bible study, and uh, I got to hear a little bit of his story. Blake did not grow up in church. He was not a Christian uh, by any means. Um, but he started, uh, his grandma started bringing him to church. And he wasn't really about it. You know, he did it just to kind of make his grandma happy. And he was coming, and uh, my friend Reed was also pouring into him, having Bible studies with him. And, you know, he was kind of, you know, going for it, not like totally all in and stuff. And he, were, he was working one night uh, at uh, I don't remember what place he worked. I'm pretty sure it was Taco Bell or something like that. But he was working the drive-through, and somebody came through and they said, "Hey, uh, read his name tag. Hey, Blake, uh, is there any way that I can pray for you?" And he was like, kind of taken back by it. Not a usual thing to be asked by somebody in the drive-through. And he said, "Well, I mean, stomach hurts a little bit, and you know, just kind of." They're like, okay, well, can I pray for you real quick? And so they just stopped, and they prayed for him right there in the drive-thru from their car, just prayed that God would heal his stomach. And he's like, okay, well, thanks, bye. And they drove off, and he noticed like two minutes later that his stomachache was completely gone. And the person driving had, you know, no idea of knowing what had happened. But as I was sitting on my front porch, um, I got to overhear him telling our buddies that, yeah, you know, I was going to church and I was getting to hear about God and all this stuff. And then this person prayed for me and my stomach got healed. And I was like, whoa, maybe God is real. And that's kind of the effect that happens whenever we pair the proclamation of the gospel with the power and the demonstration of the gospel in the kingdom of God. And I think that we can see that. I want to see a lot more of that. I think that that's, I know that that's in us because it's not us, it's the Holy Spirit. And if we depend on him, we'll see him do amazing things among us. And we'll see people come in and join this kingdom with us. And I live for that. So let's, let's pray for the kingdom. That God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. And let's preach it and let's demonstrate it together.